0: All right, well, let's get into the Word. Please turn with me in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 10. Excuse me, Hebrews chapter 9. Getting ahead of myself a little bit. Hebrews chapter 9. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love for us, and Lord, your love for all the people of the world Our hearts do break uh, to see uh, these kids, uh, these girls, women going through so much turmoil in Syria and Iraq, and we pray you would really bless uh, Victor Marks and this team that's going. We know what your word tells us, to not be overcome with evil, but to overcome evil with good. So we ask that you would move in, in powerful ways. We don't take for granted the time that we have right now to spend in your word, and pray that you'd give us clarity ears to hear, and hearts to understand, and that you would pour out your spirit and that we would see Jesus in a greater way. And we love you, in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've been going through Hebrews, we have one theme, Jesus greater than. What was the first thing in the book of Hebrews that God told us that Jesus is greater than? Do you remember chapter one? It was angels, that Jesus is greater than the angels. There was something happening in this particular church that's being written to. Where their attention was going to angels to a greater degree. Then it was, Jesus is greater than Moses. The Jews would have a tendency to look to Moses as the greatest Israelite. This church was a bunch of Jewish Christians that had gotten saved. And so it was established that Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the law, that the law cannot bring salvation and forgiveness, but Jesus can. Jesus is greater than the high priests of the Old Testament. And then last week, that Jesus is greater than the Old Covenant, bringing us into the New Covenant. In this section of Hebrews, chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10, is really the same point being told to us from a lot of different angles, and it shows us how Christ is superior in our lives. And sometimes we need to hear it from a lot of different angles. Have you heard this phrase, that repetition is the mother of all teachers? How many times has something had to be repeated to you over and over, repeated to me over and over before I get it? But how many of us like repetition? Do you enjoy repetition? Did you enjoy those math classes where they went over multiplication tables till you were blue in the face? Do you necessarily enjoy doing that with your children? Saying, okay, let's memorize these multiplication facts. And sometimes we can check out a little bit as we have a theme that's repeated to us. And I would encourage you not to do that this morning because we're gonna see in chapter nine that Jesus is greater than the tabernacle, pointing to how Christ is the high priest. It all ties into Christ being the high priest. I read a story uh, this week about the importance of repetition. I'm really enjoying this small book I'm reading. It's called A Story of Grace. It's about a group of missionaries that went to Hungary right after the fall of communism in 1989. Talk about God doing a, a great work. And this particular summer, the pastor, Pastor Greg, he gave the same message, the same exact message, six times. Six times. And the translator, the second time, was going, what in the world is the pastor doing did he forget that he gave us this message the the week before then the third and fourth time she was just flat out frustrated and humiliated like I've got to translate this again could you imagine coming to the 11 o'clock service and hearing me give the same message for six weeks in a row be like what is wrong with him he he is going senile and it came to about over time that this message, out of Ephesians chapter 1, became paramount for the church to be rooted and grounded in grace. The pastor was being led by the Lord. He knew that they needed to understand the grace of God. And I think these chapters really help us to see the depth of Christ's forgiveness in our lives. So though it's a repeating theme, I hope that it's fresh and we walk away impacted this morning. Let's look at verse 1. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. So we're going to focus on this earthly tabernacle, this earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. The tabernacle was the earthly shadow of the heavenly reality. It was a beautiful day yesterday, wasn't it? Really been enjoying the weather we've been having. Maybe you went for a walk, as I did in the morning, in the bright sun. There was probably a shadow in front of you. You could you could see the shadow because of the light behind you. You're the reality casting the shadow. In the same way, the tabernacle, the earthly tabernacle, was a copy of the heavenly reality, of the throne room of God. This tabernacle is called the tent of meeting. The whole purpose was this is where God met with his people as they were traveling through the wilderness, from Egypt to the promised land. The tabernacle was actually extremely small. It was 45 feet long, 15 feet high, and 15 feet wide. It's divided into two compartments. Actually, a good thing for you to do is to go to Google, use it for some godly reasons, and type in the tabernacle. Go on your search bar and hit images. You can do it right now if you want. It's I know you got your phones and your iPads, just go ahead and type it in. You'll see it a lot clearer than if I put one up here on the screens, and you'll see what we're talking about in these two verses, is there is the sanctuary, which is the outer court, and then there is the holiest of holies. Verse two tells us what's in that sanctuary. There's a lampstand, there's a table, and there's showbread. The lampstand would have six stems and then one main stem. It's the only light inside of the tabernacle. The table of showbread would have 12 loaves. Why do you think 12 loaves? 12 tribes. So one loaf for each tribe. Then we find the holiest of all in verse three, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. Verse four, which had the golden censer, And the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold in which were the golden pot that had manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. You've probably heard a lot about the Ark of the Covenant. There's been a lot of movies about it, a lot of speculation about it. But the Ark of the Covenant was the piece of furniture that was inside the veil, that was inside the holiest of all. Inside of the Ark of the Covenant were these three articles The size of the Ark of the Covenant is given in the Old Testament. It was only 3.75 feet long, just under four feet long, two and a quarter feet wide, and two and a quarter feet high. This is a really small box. A lot of the movies portray it as this big article of furniture, but it's pretty small. My wingspan is eight feet, believe it or not. I know it's kind of freakish, but that's eight feet right here, okay? The reason I know that is I played a lot of basketball, and that was something to admire when playing basketball. So the Ark of the Covenant is less than my left arm, pretty much. You know, that, That's about four feet right there. That's why my hands just hang down to my knees. <laughs> Evolution's not true, but if it were, I might be a specimen for that. But <laughs> that's a different point. So the Ark of the Covenant is only about that long. That's all it is. Now you can see the temptation to just pick this thing up. Oh, two guys, this is easy. We'll just, we'll just pick it up and, and move it. But God said, no, I want it to be transported with these gold rings on the side with poles going through, all to show the importance of God's presence. And God's presence represented in this Ark of the Covenant that you couldn't just pick it up and grab it. And when they disobeyed this command, there was death. How about these things that are inside the, the Ark of the Covenant? Why? What's the significance of them? There's only three Manna, Aaron's rod, and the table of the covenant, which is the law. Manna was God's provision, bread from heaven every morning. Aaron's rod was because the children of Israel were rebelling against Moses' leadership and Aaron's leadership. So God says, put your rods, and the one that buds with flowers is the one who's to be the priest. The law was broken when it was given. Manna was not appreciated. It was received with ungrateful hearts. All three of these things speak of God's provision and Israel's failure. Israel failed in the manna. They became grumblers and complainers. Israel failed with their leadership and coming against Moses instead of supporting them. Ultimately coming against the Lord. Israel failed with the giving of the law. But stay with me. Look at verse 5. What's on top of this? And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot speak now. So these angelic statues on top of the mercy seat. The the mercy seat is the lid on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Mercy seat's wonderful because this is where the blood of the offering would go, where God met his people with atonement, with forgiveness. So you have the failure is underneath the mercy seat, where God forgave the children of Israel and covered their sins. God has always met with his people according to mercy. Do you have your areas of failure? Absolutely. Do I? Absolutely. Do we have our moments just like this? Yes, but it's underneath the mercy seat that's covered with the blood of Jesus, not in the earthly tabernacle, but the heavenly tabernacle. The tabernacle is wonderful. We could study it for three weeks, n- no problem. But what does the author of Hebrews say? We're not going to go into detail on it because the earthly tabernacle is not the point, It's the heavenly tabernacle that we're concerned with. Verse 6, Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. The outer court, the sanctuary, was a place of a lot of activity. The priest always went in there to make sacrifices, to put oil into the the lamps, to trim the wicks, constantly going, going in there. It was a common place for them. Not so with verse 7, but into the second part, the high priest went once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. God only allowed one man, one day a year, into the holiest of all. Remember, this is all set up by God's design. God gives the law. He gives the old covenant. He has the tabernacle built. So that when Jesus comes and dies upon the cross and his blood is shed, the veil of the temple is torn in two and we have access now to the throne room of God that we would appreciate it. We would understand what amazing blessing it is for us to come in to God's presence. The problem with the earthly tabernacle is there was limited access. One man, one day, a year. And there was also limited efficiency, what it could accomplish but Christ, he accomplished so much greater for us, and it shows us how he's greater than the tabernacle. This is a verse, I think, that is really important for the rest of our study this morning, and just our overall understanding of God's word, is what happened in verse 7. It's called the Day of Atonement. It's given to us in great detail in Exodus and Leviticus, The high priest would come into the tabernacle. The tabernacle was cleared out. Nobody could be in the tabernacle this day. And he would start with a sin offering for himself and for the people. It would be a bull that was killed. Then it was two goats. Why two goats? Well, first they would cast lots on which goat would be sacrificed and then which goat would be the scapegoat. Have you ever heard that term? You're the scapegoat. Well, it goes back to, to the law. Because as the lot was cast, then one goat would be killed and the blood would then be taken into the holiest of all and put upon the mercy seat. While then the second goat, the priest would place both of his hands, and you can read this in the Old Testament, on the goat and pronounce the sins of the people on this goat. And the goat would then run off into the wilderness never to return. Both are pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the sacrifice upon the mercy seat in heaven so that we can be forgiven. But Jesus also is the scapegoat. He bears our sins to remove them from us. And so that's what took place in verse seven. Before we go on, look at the end of verse seven. Go ahead and take a quick glance at it. It says it was for the people's sins committed in ignorance. There was no sacrifice in the law for willful rebellion. We see that with David's life. He committed murder and adultery. And in Psalms 51, he says, God, you didn't desire a sacrifice. There's no sacrifice that I could give for adultery and for murder. If you study the law, there isn't one there, it doesn't exist. The only sacrifices that were given is if you did something in ignorance. So we see an inadequacy in this whole sacrificial system, it doesn't deal with our rebellion. It can't provide salvation and the grace that's needed. And thankfully, Christ died for our sins done in ignorance, but he also died for our sin that's done in full-on rebellion. Praise the Lord for that. So we look at verse 8. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. So God didn't provide the way into his presence while the earthly tabernacle was in existence. Jesus is the way into the presence of the Father, and that was not yet manifest. In verse nine, it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect or complete in regard to the conscience. So even the high priest that's offering these gifts, these sacrifices, walks away after the day of atonement, and still has a guilty conscience. The law, these sacrifices, they can cover sin, but they can't remove sin, and they can't cleanse the heart of guilt and shame. There's a difference between sin being covered and sin being removed. Let's say, for sake of example, I'm running late for an appointment, and it it does happen occasionally, and I'm feeling bad about late for this appointment, so I decide to speed across Colorado Springs, and I'm going 85 miles an hour in a school zone. I get pulled over by a police officer. He writes me a large ticket, several points, and as he's handing me the ticket, it falls into the mud. It's been snowy, it's muddy, and the ticket just gets covered to the point where you can't read what's on the ticket. So I go to my court date and hand the judge the ticket and he's looking at this and he says, well, I can't even read what you did so your sin is covered. I'm going to have to let you go today. Now that's far different. Now this is hypothetical. I see some of the looks on your face. Is this, <laughs> it's okay. This is hypothetical. <laughs> let's, let's say that the ticket hadn't been dropped. It's not muddy. It's crystal clear. I'm standing there and the judge is saying, here's your fine, here's here's some jail time that's gonna be given. And then one of you comes in the back of the courtroom and says, you know what, I'm I'm gonna pay that fine. I'm gonna serve that time in jail. It's gonna be paid, paid in full. It's entirely different. Jesus paid for our sin. He removed our sin. That's what the new covenant does. That's what the old covenant couldn't do. So with the earthly tabernacle... It lacked in access, it lacked in efficiency. And verse 10, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washing and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. The law primarily dealt with the outward, not the inward. May we be encouraged to not just look at the outward? Don't we just look at the outward. Religion looks at the outward. Religion comes up with rules that are external, but God wants what? He wants the heart. He came and died for our heart. He wants us to love him from the inside out. That's what a relationship with Jesus Christ does, is it deals with the heart. Now I think that's what our young people are longing for. You know, parents, we, we need to provide that structure for our kids. We need to provide those rules for our kids. But rules aren't going to change the heart. Structure is not going to change the heart. We, all kids need that. And there's so much importance in that. But in the midst of... The rules and in the midst of the structure, we need to be pointing them to a relationship with Jesus Christ. And ultimately, they, they've got to choose it. But it's Christ that brings salvation, it's Christ that brings the transformation of the heart. Maybe you find yourself in that place and you're saying, You know what? I know rules, I know the do's, I know the don'ts, I, I know all of these things that religion tells me, but I'm lacking the relationship with Christ, I'm lacking of understanding His love. Maybe you've grown up in the church. And it's still just rules to you. Maybe you're 50 years old and it's just, it's just rules to you. Maybe this morning is your Valentine's Day gift to your wife. You know, you said, I know it's, it's Valentine's weekend, so I'll go to church with you. But you can't wait to get out of here. I understand. That's how I grew up every Sunday. It was the rule to go to church. And I'm glad that we had that rule. But I did not enjoy being there. Why? Because it was just external. And the law does the external, but it's Christ that does the heart. We need to allow Christ in our hearts, and that's the Reformation. That external law was imposed until Christ came and died. Now we get to look at the heavenly sanctuary and all that Christ accomplished for us in the heavenly tabernacle, the throne room. But Christ came as high priest of good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is not of this creation. So Christ, he went not to the earthly, but to the heavenly. And verse 12, not with blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So in our imagination, we picture Christ going to the Father on our behalf, not with calves, not with goats, not with animals, blood, but with his own blood, with his own sacrifice, his own life, with eternal redemption. Redemption has that idea of paying the price. So it's with his blood that he bought us. You're you're loved by God. If you're having a hard time receiving that and believing that, look at verse 12. It was his own blood that was sacrificed for us. He loved us with his life. Verse 13, for if the blood of bulls and goats And the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. So, if there was a covering that took place with animal sacrifice, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How much more has the blood of Christ accomplished in our lives? Notice that Jesus himself is without spot to God. I was really encouraged by this this week. This truth is that when you brought a lamb, an animal sacrifice in the Old Testament, the priests examined the sacrifice, but never the person giving the sacrifice. And when Jesus is our perfect and spotless lamb, the Father inspects Jesus, not us. That's why we can be forgiven. That's why we can stand confident that we're in Christ Jesus. The priest wouldn't go, how is your week? Are you a person of integrity? Let's, let's see your repentance. It was simply about the lamb. And if the lamb was pure and spotless. Write down Matthew chapter 22. I think you'll see this in a greater way. Jesus is about ready to be crucified. He gets examined by the high priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, even the Greeks, and no one can find any fault with Christ. There is a purpose for that, so that we can stand confident that he's the pure and spotless lamb. How do we know if we're forgiven? Not because of us, but because he's without spot. Notice what he does for us. As in this heavenly tabernacle, he cleanses your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. If you're taking notes, we got four things this morning. Think them through with me. Number one, Jesus cleanses our conscience. This is what the law could never do. Our conscience is what lets us know we've sinned, we've messed up. We had it before we were saved. The Holy Spirit heightens it. We come to know Christ is our Savior, and in our hearts we know we're forgiven. You go to bed that night realizing that you're the child of God. It's wonderful. Nothing can replace that. Even as God's children, when we sin and we come and do business with the Lord and receive His grace afresh, We know we're forgiven and we have our conscience cleansed there's nothing like it people are longing to have their conscience cleansed aren't they they're trying so many different things to get to that place or to silence their conscience and it's only found in the blood of Jesus Christ and as he cleanses our conscience he also cleanses us from dead works in context of Hebrews 9 what are the dead works I suggest to you that it's trying to approach God through the law It's trying to approach God with this attitude of saying, it's going to be animal sacrifice that results in forgiveness. It's going to be what I eat, what I don't eat, me holding to the Sabbath that's ultimately going to result in God's forgiveness. And the Lord says, that's dead works. That's not going to result in transformation. That's not going to be life giving to you. I would think that most of you this morning, you're not struggling with going back under the law like this group of Hebrews were at the current time. You're not going, well, okay, I probably need to eat kosher. Okay, I need to strictly observe the Sabbath. I got to stop coming to church on Sunday morning because it's not technically the Sabbath, even though the early church celebrated on the first day of the week. You're probably not all tripped up by the fact that there's not animal sacrifice in the temple. But this may be what's tripping us up is we've developed our own system of dead works. Because it's come with an attitude of, well, I've got to earn God's favor. I read my Bible today, so God loves me today. I came to church, so the Lord loves me today. You know, I I didn't do this, so I have God's blessing today. And the truth of scripture is, The blessing, the forgiveness, the favor of God, it comes through the blood of Jesus. It comes through the reality that Christ is at the throne room of the Father and he declares us righteous, that we're in him, we're in Christ's Son. So he cleanses us from dead works. This is one of those things I think we hear over and over again, but it sinks in our hearts. Sink it in, let it sink. God doesn't love you more because you read your Bible. God doesn't love you more because you went on a missions trip. God doesn't love you more because you decided to tithe. No, that's not it at all. He loves you because He loves you, because we don't deserve His love, because He's loving. And when we get that truth, it sets free this motivation to serve the living God. Not out of responsibility, not out of trying to earn His favor, but because I have His favor. Oh, Lord, I just want to serve you. I'm forgiven. I'm your son. I'm your daughter wow, Lord, this is amazing. I'm a joint heir with Christ. What does it look like to serve the Lord? Sometimes we have these lofty kind of Christian phrases. Serve God. Well, what does that mean? Very simply, if we're going to serve God, we're going to love people. That's what Jesus teaches us. Love the Lord and love your neighbor as yourself. If you love God, then you're going to love people. Whoever's around you at any given moment, say, okay, God, I'm going to die to selfishness You've been so gracious to me, I just want to serve whoever you've put around me. We go on into verse 15. And for this reason, he's the mediator of the new covenant by means of his death. Mediator is to bring into right relationship. He brings us into right relationship into the new covenant through his death. His death was the ransom for our forgiveness, for the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant. The first covenant, the law, did a good job of showing us our transgression that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. This is what Jesus provides, number two, an eternal inheritance, an eternal inheritance. I think you're going to be frustrated as a believer until you lay hold of your eternal inheritance. This is not your home, it was never intended to be your home, it's not intended to be my home, There's many blessings that come with it and a lot of joy that God has given to us. But I think we find life and find it to the fullest when we put our hearts and minds on our eternal home. Paul looked at the sufferings that he went through in his life and he considered them to be light. And if you know how much he went through, it's like, how could your suffering be considered light? Because he chose to focus on the eternal instead of the temporal However, none of us are wired that way. It doesn't come natural to focus on this eternal inheritance. So I want you to do that for just a moment this morning. Think about eternal. Think about forever. You have an eternal inheritance with the Lord. Joint heirs with Christ. A glorified body. No more sin. Streets paved with gold. The list goes on and on. Ruling and reigning with Christ. And Jesus' message was never, this life's going to be easy. His message was like, I came to give you eternal life. That this life can't touch. That this life can't take away. John 3.16 tells us that we have everlasting life if we believe in Christ. It's something that we have. It's something that, that we possess. It's something that Christ has provided for us. Eternal inheritance. Verse 16. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the tester. For a testament is force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the tester lives. The word testament means last will and testament. For our understanding, it's really a will. It's what you write down to, to pass on to whoever you may choose. That will is not implemented while you're alive. It's only implemented when you die. In the same way, Christ set forth a testament. He, he set forth many blessings that he brings into our lives that were accomplished through his death. So this is number three, is Jesus brings us into the new covenant. He told us that this is the new covenant through my blood. It's his death that brings us into this new agreement. As you study the scriptures, you've maybe noticed and heard it referred to the Old Testament and the New Testament. Have you ever wondered why? Well, why do they call it the Old Testament? And why do they call it the, the New Testament? It's really more the Old Covenant and the New Covenant the Old Testament is God dealing with mankind through the law. Then the New Covenant, the New Testament is God dealing with us through Jesus Christ. And it's the Old Covenant that leads us to the New Covenant. If you missed last week's study, please go back and listen to it on the church's website or pick up a CD because we went into detail on the New Covenant and how glorious it is. In verse 18, therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. So we see the blood that's involved in the first covenant. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the new covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all of the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all the things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So try to picture the tabernacle and walking through the outer court, of the sanctuary, and it's sprinkled with blood. It's not necessarily how you would like to decorate your house. Why is this? it shows us the importance of sin and the consequence of sin and the severity of sin, that there's no remission, there's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. Imagine you're a Jewish family and you're growing up, raising some cattle, you've got a lamb, family pet, and dad says it's time for this lamb to be sacrificed. Why? What did the lamb ever do? The lamb's innocent. Do your kids get attached to your pets? Our kids do. We have a family dog. She's about seven years old. And the kids are already concerned about what are we going to do when she passes away. And they know that I do a lot of funerals, a lot of memorial services. And so they're planning out the dog's funeral. (laughs) Why are they doing that? Because they're attached to, to the dog. You know, and I kind of like to play tough with the dog, but when it comes down to it, I'm going to be sad too. You know, I'm going to be I'm going to be bummed out when, when that that dog dies. So these families are connected to these animals and they're asking these questions of, "Well, why does this animal have to die?" And it goes, "Well, because we've sinned and this is the price that has to be paid for sin. The wages of sin is death." All of the animal sacrifice in the old covenant leads to the death of Jesus Christ and his blood. That without the shedding of his blood, there's no forgiveness, but because his blood was shed for us, as we believe in his sacrifice, we're forgiven. In verse 23, therefore it was necessary that the copies of things in the heavens should be purified w- with these. So that's the earthly tabernacle, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifice than these. So the throne room of God, a better sacrifice, which is Christ. For Christ has not entered... The holy place is made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. He appeared before the Father for us. Verse 25, not that he should offer himself often as high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Please don't misunderstand. When we sin, Jesus doesn't die again. He doesn't bleed again. He simply goes before the Father and says, it's already been paid for. When Satan condemns us, we condemn ourselves. Others condemn us. Jesus is that advocate, that mediator that says, it's already been paid for. It's been paid for in full. It's forgiveness. And this shows us the sacrifice of Christ was complete the first time. Here's the fourth thing to consider. Jesus puts away sin for good. At the end of verse 26, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It's completely put away. I've said this before, but because repetition is the mother of all teachers... Why are you still trying to sacrifice for a sin that Jesus has already paid for? He's the sacrifice for sin. He has put it away. It has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with my works. It's already been done for. Why are we beating ourselves up for something that happened 10 years ago, 10 minutes ago, that may happen in the future? What would take place if we really believed this? If we really allowed it to impact us? All my sins put away. I don't have to sacrifice anymore to try to earn or deserve forgiveness. I get to walk in it. I get to rejoice in it. I get to respond to it. Wouldn't it be kind of lame if you received a Valentine's gift and it's like, do you really mean it? Do Do you really have the money for this? Like, did this go on the credit card and we're just gonna have to pay it for the next six months, you know? Do you really love me, or? You're just kind of saying the words and this kind of thing. That's, that's lame, isn't it? There's something wrong there. And if we're going to the Lord, like, do you really forgive me? Was the blood of Jesus Christ really enough? And the Father and his patience like, yeah, it's enough. It's more than enough. I've put your sin away from you. I've removed it from you. You're forgiven. Jesus says, put away sin for good. Verse 27, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment, how many times do we die? Once. Once. So what does that mean for reincarnation? It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. The scripture tells us there's one time and then there's the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, to those who eagerly wait for him, He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Another response to God's grace is we go, Jesus, I can't wait for you to come back the second time. Jesus came first as suffering servant, second time conquering king. As he ascended, he will descend. And are you eagerly waiting for the second coming of Jesus Christ? Let's be honest this afternoon. What are you really excited about? Are you excited about kids have a day off school tomorrow? Are you excited about getting a promotion at work? Are you excited about you fill in the blank? There's nothing necessarily wrong with those things. Those are blessings to be received from the Lord. Can you just not wait to get out of school? We all have things that we're in our hearts eagerly waiting for, but are we eagerly waiting for the second coming of Jesus Christ? It's only him that's going to make everything right. So what have we seen in our our text? The earthly tabernacle was lacking in access. It was lacking in efficiency. But Christ, what has he done for us? He's cleansed our conscience. And then he's put away our sin from us. So how do we respond to what he's done for us? There's two ways in our text. There's two things that God's word tells us to do. It's to serve him. If we understand what Christ has done for us, that it's complete, then we go, oh man, I I don't have to start earning it anymore. I don't have to start putting all this pressure on myself anymore. I don't have to live in that place of fear. It's already been given to me. I just get to serve the Lord out of gratitude. And then the second response is to eagerly wait for his return. Did you know in 2 Timothy, it tells us that there is a special crown that God gives to believers that are anticipating his return? That's pretty cool. It's not difficult, but yet a lot of times we lose sight of it in the midst of the challenges of daily life. God, if I'm honest, I totally forgot about your second coming this week. All I was thinking about was, was bills and sickness and laundry and getting through this life, and oh yeah, you're coming back. I can't wait for that. So though it's not complicated, it can be challenging in the midst of our, our daily struggles. Would you stand with me and let's pray. You guys enjoying the book of Hebrews? Finding it to be refreshing? Let's pray. Father, simple prayer for us. We ask in Jesus' name that you would help us to understand in a greater way what you, Jesus, have accomplished for us in your death and resurrection. That we are forgiven would you plant your grace in our hearts like never before? May we find ourselves responding to it. God, I pray you'd bless your people. Give us that revelation of Jesus Christ in a greater way. In Jesus' name, amen.